the Church of Shio Jashub Christian Tabernacle of Madison, Connecticut, is pleased to bring you this Bible study program entitled Shi'ar Jashub, featuring the teaching ministry of Pastor Greg Scalzo. Hi, I'm Patty Scalzo, and today we will be continuing my husband's sermon from 1 Samuel chapter 7 on Israel's repentance at Mizpah, part of our ongoing series on heavenly authority. When we left off last time, Pastor read verse 9, where Samuel offered a sacrifice to God and cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Now let's rejoin Pastor Greg. But Samuel, Korah's descendant, is a consecrated individual who has given his life to God. He was brought as a Nazarite from birth. He has submitted diligently, wearing his little white ephod, to Aaron's descendant, Eli, and his unholy sons, working and serving them day and night at the tabernacle in Shiloh. He was the true Levite in service of the descendants of Aaron, even from infancy. He's one like Moses, totally sold out to God. A Nazarite, a Levite, a prophet, a receiver of the revelations of God, a judge, and unlike many of the other judges we studied in the book of Judges before him, he's a man of God. And so what Korah could not obtain because of his pride and his lack of honest introspection and his lack of repentance and recognition of his sinful state, but rather saying we're all holy, what Korah could not obtain, his descendant Samuel, who knows and teaches the people repentance, who knows we are not all holy, this man of God, Samuel, can obtain can now minister as priest, not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. Not in the tabernacle of Shiloh, but at a simple altar like Abraham. And we said before that, as such, Samuel is a type of the holy priesthood of believers in Jesus Christ under the new covenant. It's not as if God here is lowering the bar, kind of making an exception, reducing the requirements for priests that he had given Aaron. It's clearly unlawful later on for Saul, the anointed king, to make a sacrifice. He doesn't wait for Samuel, and he gets himself in trouble. God is not lowering the requirement for priests. Rather, he's raising the bar and Samuel has achieved a higher priesthood than Eli, whom he replaces. He's the one that fulfills the prophecy we studied, which the man of God brings to Eli. A priesthood based upon an individual understanding that none are holy except God, that it's by God's sacrifice that we have access, that we must repent, consecrate ourselves, spirit, soul, and body, with all our hearts preparing ourselves for God to be true men and women of God. And for such as that, 
For such is Samuel, the ram horn sounds, and the mountain of God can be approached. So now we have here Samuel the prophet, Samuel the judge of the leader, and Samuel the priest. And so, as such, it's very clear that he's a type, he's an illustration, he's a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who would be prophet and king and high priest. And he cries out in intercession for Israel. And in verse 10 it reads, Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, so God hears this burnt offering, he answers, he accepts it, it's proper. The Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. It's a loud sound of thunder. The earth shakes. He confuses the Philistines. Very simple, supernatural deliverance. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below Bethkar. Now the exact location of Bethkar is unknown. They believe it's someplace between Mizpah and the Mediterranean because they're pushing the Philistines back. Finally, you have victory. Finally, after all that we read of the defeat of Israel by the Philistines, you have this marvelous victory. So what does Samuel do? Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen. Now Shen could be the same as Jeshna. The location of Shen is also not clear. It's assumed it's somewhere in the vicinity of Mizpah. Some feel it's possibly a city north of Bethel, but it's not known. It's not clear. Some place between Mizpah, where we know that is, and this town Shen, which we don't know, Samuel takes a stone, and he sets it up, and he calls its name Ebenezer, saying, thus far, the Lord has helped us. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. When we read that Samuel names the stone Ebenezer, what should we think about? First, we should think about the location where Israel suffered such terrible defeat under the Philistines 20 years earlier, right? It should come right to mind. When first they went out to battle and they lost 4,000. And they went out to battle and they lost 30,000. And then the Ark of the Covenant, Hophni and Phinehas are killed, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken captive by the pagans and taken from Israel. Now, some sources, some scholars feel the place where Samuel sets up this memorial stone is the exact same spot where Israel had previously been smitten 20 years before. If that's the case, and when you read the references to the name Ebenezer in Samuel earlier on in chapter 4, verse 1, and chapter 5, verse 1, it would be in foreknowledge, the writer, Samuel, the other prophets writing the book, in foreknowledge of what the name would be for that location when Samuel sets up the stone, lets you know that the troops had been at Ebenezer. And they feel it's the exact same spot, in which case it would be somewhere between Mizpah and Aphek. Aphek is a place the Philistines gathered for the battle for Ebenezer. So someplace between Mizpah and Aphek would be the area of the stone. Other sources 
feel it's a different spot, not the same location, that the earlier Ebenezer was named Ebenezer and was located up further north by Aphek, and that this stone that Samuel sets up is somewhere in the vicinity of Mizpah and Bethel there. If that's the case, what's Samuel doing? If it is indeed a separate location, and it wasn't with foreknowledge that the name was given earlier, but that was the name of the area early on up in Aphek where they lost the battle. Then Samuel, by naming the stone Ebenezer, is obviously reminding Israel what happened at the first location. He's saying, remember when your sin cost you such a great price. It meant the end of Shiloh. It meant the slaughter of so many people. And it meant the dark time of Israel. Remember. Remember Ebenezer. So either the stone is at the same spot where they suffered defeat, or Samuel in part is naming the stone to remind them of that defeat at Ebenezer. And now the defeat of Ebenezer has been reversed. God has given them victory. And there's a meaning to the name. The word of the name Ebenezer means stone of help. Stone of help. And so Samuel calls the stone Ebenezer saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. And there's an implication there that, you know, we have to keep staying in the Lord if we want him to continue to help us. Thus far the Lord has helped us. This stone will be a monument. I name it Ebenezer, stone of help, because God is our help. He is the stone of our help. He is the one who gave us the victory. And so that stone reminds them of their defeat at Ebenezer, and it reminds them of their victory that God is the one that helps. For God, the Lord, has helped us. And you can imagine the different emotions that the name Ebenezer must have meant to the Israelites at the time. You're going from utter defeat and humiliation by the Philistines to miraculous victory, which we just read about. And it gives us a better appreciation, you know, back in the time of Dickens, the average person knew a lot of the Bible, a lot more than many scholars know today. They just read it from youth. And you can see why that name is chosen for the character in the classic Christmas carol, because it starts off a man of darkness, of defeat, a dismal situation, and at the end he turns around to be a stone of help to the people, giving money away, helping to restore little tiny Tim and the rest. Gives you a better appreciation why Dickens chose that name. And it's a miraculous victory. Look what happens here in verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, restoration, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered his territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Finally, peace. Finally, deliverance. Deliverance for this time. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. God 
is the stone of help. In a sense, what happened 20 years earlier to the Israelites was the start of what's happening here now. Because God would not, at Ebenezer the first, would not allow himself, would not let himself be a stone of help in the battles at Ebenezer. He would not let the ark bring victory with Hophni and Phinehas in the lead because of Israel's sins and transgressions and paganisms and superstitions. He wouldn't help them. And wasn't that a help? That he wouldn't help them. Psalm 23 says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Did not the rod of God at Ebenezer, from an eternal point of view, help his people? Didn't the fall of Shiloh finally, eventually wake them up and they lamented after the Lord, repenting so that in every way he could then directly be a stone of help and start the period that would bring in the golden age of Israel. We value your comments and it is always a blessing to hear from our radio family to know if our program has helped you in your walk with the Lord. All correspondence should be mailed to Shi'ar Jeshub Christian Tabernacle, Post Office Box 518, Branford, Connecticut 06405. Also, let me invite you to our Sunday service. Shi'ar Jeshub Christian Tabernacle meets at 10 a.m. at the Madison Memorial Hall on Meeting House Lane in Madison, Connecticut. Please join us next time for Shi'ar Jeshub.